Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace. Whether you're joining us at Saratoga, at Half Moon, at Latham online, we're really glad that you're with us today. Well, we've been on this journey talking about flourishing for a few weeks, and today I want to wrap all of that up by talking about sort of the bottom line of flourishing. Because here, here's the big picture. We flourish best when we help others flourish. Or to put it to you a little bit differently, God's intention is never for the flourishing to stop with us. Hope we all get that today. If you missed that, you've missed the big point of the message. God definitely wants us to experience progressively all the dimensions of his favor and blessing in this world, but he doesn't want it to stop there. God always, his heart is that we would be his instruments to pass that on to other people. Now, if you have your Bible, I want to look at a text today, Genesis 11, the last few verses, and then the first five verses of Genesis 12. So if you have that, let's look at it together. I believe that God has something good in store for everyone today who has ears to hear. I'm reading now from Genesis 11, starting in verse 31, and I want us for our outline today to look at three basic things. First of all, the principle, then we're going to look at the problem, and then I want to finish by talking about the prescription for flourishing. Verse 31 reads, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, let me just pause there. I'm going to be using some names today interchangeably. If you're new to the Bible, you need to know that a couple of the names we saw here were later changed a bit. Abram, for instance, was changed to Abraham. Sarai was later changed to Sarah. So just so there's no confusion, I'll probably be just using both Abram and Abraham. I just want you to know it's the same person. I may use Sarai and Sarah, just so you know, we're talking about the same individual, all right? I hope that's clear. Now in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, I see in this passage both a specific promise and a broader principle. Let me quickly explain to you what I mean by that. First of all, the specific promise that's here fulfilled through Christ. Just so you know, 
If you're new to scripture, this is one of those passages that you probably want to highlight, prick your finger and bleed on, do something to highlight this section because this is a very pivotal moment in salvation history. Keep in mind that when God gave this promise to Abram, his wife Sarai was barren. She was, although 10 years younger than Abram, she was past menopause. So in other words, humanly speaking, she would have been totally incapable of having children naturally. And yet, in spite of this reality, God gives this outlandish promise that he's going to bless them, he's going to make of them a great nation, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through them. Now, how did that ultimately get fulfilled? This is very important. Virtually every Christian scholar is agreed upon this point, that the ultimate and maximal fulfillment of that promise came through God sending his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Messiah into the world. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again. And it is through him and ultimately through his church that this promise gets fulfilled. Virtually every Christian scholar is agreed on that. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul himself unpacks this in Galatians 3, verse 16. He says, the promises, what we've just read, and by the way, it's reiterated a number of times in the book of Genesis and other places. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that, look, this promise that God gave to Abraham was ultimately fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ and ultimately through his body, the church, that is commissioned to go into all the world and take the gospel to all the people groups and be a blessing to the whole world. I hope you're hearing that today. This shows so many things about God. It shows God's heart. The blessing was never meant to stop with Abram or with the nation of Israel or with just the Jewish people, and it's not meant to stop with just the church or with any individual Christian either. God's heart, oh, this is big. That's why I'm just, ooh, if, I'd if I could stand on my head right now and spit jelly beans to get this across to you, I would. You need to get this. God's heart always was and always will be that through his true followers, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Let me mention just one other scripture that highlights this. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, those who are of the law means the Jewish people, those who've received the Old Testament revelation, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. In other words, non-Jewish people, anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ, he is the father of us all. So here's the deal. Are you in Christ today? Guess what? You get in on this. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you get in on this promise that he made to Abram so long ago. He wants you to be a part of this blessing to the whole world. That's the specific promise fulfilled through Christ. But now, I want you to see the broader principle as a perpetual expectation. The broader principle found here is that every Christ follower, listen now, is to be blessed in order to be a blessing. There's a popular Christian t-shirt that I see on a pretty regular basis. I see it on bumper stickers, hats, all kinds of places. Here's what it says, too blessed to be stressed. Have you seen that? Pretty good message, actually. Too blessed to be stressed. I like that message, but I wish someone would make a t-shirt with this message. Too blessed to keep it all to myself. Because that's really the heart of God. God wants his people to be so blessed that they would pass it on. That's why from day one in this series, very first message, we've been defining flourishing, biblical flourishing, as progressively experiencing the full dimensions of God's favor and blessings in this life and the next and helping others do the same. If the blessings are all coming in, but never going out, we're not experiencing optimal flourishing. God's heart is crystal clear, I believe, in Scripture. He wants to bless us, that's for sure, but he wants us to be a conduit of blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Now, let's turn a corner. I hope that is crystal clear. That's the principle. But now let's talk for a little bit about the problem. If that is really God's heart, and that is so crystal clear in Scripture, I mean, why doesn't that happen more consistently? I want to try to explain to you right now why I believe that principle or that purpose of God gets thwarted so often. Let's go back to the text, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Notice what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, household and go to a land I will show you. God says, look, I've got a land, I've got a place, it's called Canaan. It is truly the place of flourishing that I have for you. Now notice, this was spoken in past tense. And here's the good news. Abram got off to a good start. He left the comfort of his home. He took his family and some relatives along. He left Ur of the Chaldeans, and he started on his journey. That's a good thing. They headed in the right direction, obeying God's call, off to a good start. But chapter 11, verse 31 says, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. Do you see that, the last part of verse 31? When they came to Haran, they settled there. Now think with me about what this means. Haran is north of Canaan. It's on the way to Canaan, but it's not really Canaan. It has some of the characteristics of flourishing, but it's not really the optimal flourishing God has in mind. 
Now, why would they settle down in a place that wasn't the real deal? Because it was actually quite good. Haran, if you were in a caravan going anywhere in that day, north, south, east, or west, you almost had to go through Haran. Haran was on a major trade route. Haran was a part of, if you go to seminary, you'll be told about the Fertile Crescent. It's this crescent of land that spanned a few hundred miles there, and all around it was barren wilderness, but on this crescent, it was pretty well watered. So that's where most of the trade routes took place. That's where your animals could graze and get grass and food. That's where you could get ample water for your journey and so on, and all the territory around it was barren. So they settled down in Haran and stayed there for a while. Let's not be too hard on them because it looked good. There were lots of opportunities in Haran. In fact, they really prospered financially in Haran to the point of becoming quite wealthy. Verse 5 that we read from chapter 12 tells about all the livestock and all the acquisitions they made in Haran. Abram had his face on the front of Fortune magazine, I want to tell you. I mean, his stocks, that is his livestock at least, was doing quite well in Haran. We don't know how long they stayed there, but it was a while, and we know Abram was 75 when they finally left. Now, don't miss the application for us. We, my brothers and sisters, are faced with the same problem that they faced on their road to flourishing. We can easily get sidetracked and bogged down in the comforts and attractions of this life, and we can fail to get to the land of flourishing where God wants us to be. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, I've seen this happen so many times. I could give you names. Obviously, I want to protect their identity. I could give you the names of many high school and college students that I've known who got their lives squared up with God, and they felt a sense of call from God, and I mean a real call. It was powerful. Some of them said, God's calling me to the mission field. I want to go into foreign missions. God's put that. Some of them said, I want to serve the underserved people groups of the world. Some of them said, God is calling me to preach in a local congregation. And they started off well, just like Abram did. But then they got sidetracked. The financial realities of serving in the typical small church began to hit them in the face. They realized, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to live at the level financially that I was even raised with that my parents brought me up in. I'm not sure I signed up for this. Oh yeah, I thought God called me to the mission field, but you know, that's so far away. And I forgot that that would mean the grandparents wouldn't get to see the grandchildren. That's too high a price to pay. And I've known a lot of business people through the years who had just as real a call from God, just as real as Abram's. And God had given them a passionate vision to take Christ, the living Christ, into the marketplace. I'm going to make a difference there. I'm going to get the gospel outside of the walls of the church, praise God, out where it can do some good, out in the marketplace. And they wanted to be a powerful presence for Christ. 
But then the stigma, the sting of the gospel message in such a countercultural environment began to hit them in the face. And suddenly when people found out they were a person of faith, one of those people, one of those Christian types, and a weird one at that, then suddenly the invitations began to diminish. And the invitations to parties and social gatherings and the invitations to be a colleague or a consultant in their world began to slow down and they began to feel the sting of that and sadly they lost their sense of call and purpose and opted for the comfort and convenience of Haran rather than moving on to the land of flourishing. Are you getting me today? Are you hearing the powerful application of this message to our lives? It's not just Abram that's tempted to settle down in Haran. We have that same temptation to get today, but I want to tell you, partial obedience is no obedience at all. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, although it may feel like the land of Canaan, if it's not the real thing, don't settle down there. Beware of getting bogged down on your way to a true life of flourishing. Anything short of the real deal is not the real deal. And yet it's a temptation we all face. So we've looked at the principle. We've looked at the problem. But now I want to spend the remainder of our minutes talking about what I'll call the prescription. Here's what I mean by the prescription. Here's the question I'm really asking here. How can we keep what happened to them from happening to us? I hope the principle is clear. We started off with it. God never wants the life of flourishing to stop with us. Ever, ever, ever. He always wants us to be channels, conduits of flourishing to other people. So how can we keep it from happening to us? I'm just going to suggest a two-fold prescription, two things, but I believe there's a lot packed in to these two ideas. The first one, if you want to keep what happened to them from happening to you, consistently remember that God is the source of every blessing in your life. I think it all starts there. I think that's the foundation. You gotta have a big view of God and you gotta understand that God is the sovereign owner and source of every good thing in your life. In Matthew chapter eight, verse two, it says a man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You know what I think? I think that leper understood something we all need to get. God is the source. He's sovereign. He's in control, owner of everything, author and designer of my journey. It all has to start there. And I would challenge you if you doubt this principle, 
Study the lives of the great women and men of God down through the centuries that God used in fabulous ways to bless others, whether it was taking the gospel to people groups, whether it was preaching powerfully, teaching in insightful ways, whether it was influencing folks for good and helping them live better lives. I challenge you, this is the thing they settled first before God used them in a major way. Have you settled this? The eminent Oxford scholar and passionate Christian, C.S. Lewis, he said so many profound things. He's one of the most quotable individuals in history. I was just reading this week in my copy of Mere Christianity, a great classic old book. If you haven't read this, I strongly urge you to do so. And I was reading through this, and one passage in this struck me in a fresh new way. Lewis writes, in God, this is page 124 of my copy, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. Wow. I don't think you and I will ever settle any issues that amount to much in our spiritual development until we settle the fact that God is the sovereign source of every blessing in our lives. I believe a life of flourishing begins right there. Brothers and sisters, I start virtually every day by an acknowledgement of that. I would urge you to do the same, whatever words you want to use. Every single day, I just say to the Lord, you are the sovereign one. You are the author of my life. There is not a good thing that I enjoy in this life that is not from your gracious hand. I'm yours. I belong to you. My life is not my own. I say this virtually every day, just in a little bit different words each time, just from my heart. And it's just a great, honest worship of the Lord. And I would urge you to do something like this in your life. Just acknowledge you're the source of every good thing that I enjoy. But the second and final part of the prescription that I would recommend is to consistently find ways to release those blessings to others. Every good thing, everything you enjoy, everything that you are is from him. Find ways to release those blessings to others. So can I just summarize the mistake that Abram and his descendants made and which you and I are tempted to make? We are tempted, this is just the classic problem, we are tempted to focus on the top line of God's promise and forget the bottom line. That's it. They loved this part of the promise. I will make you into a great nation. Woo, that sounds awesome. I will bless you. Bring it on, Lord. I like that kind of talk. I will make your name great, Abram. Woo, we're special. We're the apple of God's eye. I love that kind of blessing. Bring on the blessing, Lord. And that's okay. 
because that's what God wanted to do. That was a part of God's agenda, but they forgot the bottom line. That that was never where God wanted it to stop. He wanted to bless them so they could be a conduit of blessing to others. So, historically, this is easy to prove, they became a clog instead of a channel. They became a reservoir instead of a river. And brothers and sisters, it is so easy for that to happen to us. Can I just speak to your heart here for one minute? I hope you understand this. Once you are saved by the grace of God, it's not over then. That's not the end of what God wants. He doesn't want you to get your ticket stamped to heaven and then see you later. That's all I had for you. Hope we all understand this. When we are saved by the grace of God, that is the start of a flourishing life that helps others flourish. We then become his instruments of righteousness and blessing in this world. If you have your Bible, would you quickly turn to Romans chapter 6, please? Romans chapter 6. I just want you to see this with your own eyes, please. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. This is for everyone who is truly a follower of Christ. So if you claim Christ as your Savior, I want you to see this with your own eyes. Romans 6, verse 13. Paul writes, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. What does that mean? You're God's toolkit. You're God's means of doing his work in this world. That's what it means to be his instruments. So if you're a Christian today, that is the incredible privilege of every Christ follower but it's also the awesome responsibility of every Christ follower. We become his instruments to help others flourish. Now, let me just get real personal for a moment. Are you doing that? Not, it's not a guilt trip time. That's not what this is about. I'm here to ask you some very important questions. Could you name anyone right now that you are helping as God's instrument to flourish? Could you name anyone? This is always the front burner issue. It's not a back burner afterthought. This is the front burner issue of every healthy Christ follower. It's the first question the apostle Paul asked when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. What do you want me to do, Lord? Acts 22, verse 10. And that is the sincere heart cry of every truly born again follower of Jesus. Lord, what do you want me to do? But it's so easy for us to forget that. We want God to bless us. But God says, I want it to go beyond that. I want to use you as my instrument in this world to be a blessing to others. So follow me here as we begin to wrap up. If 
we're going to not get caught in the trap that Abram got caught in, if we're not going to get caught in the trap that generations of Christians have gotten caught in, if we're going to be a river rather than a reservoir, if we're going to be a channel rather than a clog, we've got to get this part. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. So what I discover experientially in my Christian life is that when I give mercy to someone who needs mercy, guess what? I receive mercy back in return. When I give forgiveness to someone who needs my forgiveness, guess what? I just flourish in forgiveness in my own life. When I give freely and generously financially, guess what? I, I give and I receive and I give and I receive and I give and I receive and I find, wow, God's shovel's bigger than mine and I just keep on receiving more than I ever dreamed. And so we give and we get and we give and we get and we give and we get and we give and we get, but if it ever stops on get, you're in trouble. Did you hear me, brothers and sisters? If it ever stops on get, you're in trouble. You just settled down in Haran instead of moving on to the promised land. You just showed something about the motivation of your heart. We must always, always release those blessings to other people. Now, there's one other scripture I want us to see before we go, and this is, one, this is, this is something I just cannot end today without, without talking to you about. It's in Ezekiel chapter 22. I'll bet you don't go to Ezekiel very often. What a strange book it is. All kinds of wild visions and things that God showed Ezekiel, but it's very powerful, actually. In Ezekiel chapter 22, here's what I want to press on you in these final moments. God's desire, I believe this is God's heart, it wasn't to bless others independently from Abram. He wanted, and this is amazing to me, God wanted to bless others through Abram and in cooperation with Abram. This is huge. God acts in context with our obedience. What I'm saying to you today is that God usually does not override our obedience, our disobedience rather, by saying, look, if you don't get involved letting me use you as my instrument, I'm just going to do it anyway. I believe there are things in this world that simply don't get done unless we cooperate with God as his instrument. Let me give you just one example, one example of this Ezekiel 22, verse 30. God says through his prophet, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. Think of what that's saying. My purpose is not to destroy, not to, for wrath to come. I'm looking for a person who'll stand in the gap on my behalf. But then he goes on to say, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them. Because I 
couldn't find a person who would work with me and stand in the gap to avert my judgment on the people, then my judgment came on the people. What was lacking was not God's desire or intent. What was lacking was the obedience of a person. Now, please don't take this too far. Please don't tell, oh, you're teaching that if I don't want the judgment day to happen, I just don't have to cooperate with God and I'll thwart judgment day. You're living a pipe dream. God is God. We get that, don't we? The macro purposes of God are never going to be thwarted. According to Isaiah 46.10, he makes known the end from the beginning. He says... My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I hope we all get that, right? It's a part of his sovereignty. What I'm saying to you is there are many things, I believe, there are many things in this world that God desires, but he's looking for that person to work with him as his instrument. And I don't know about you, but I just can't help but believe and wonder how many things God is looking to do in the capital district, but he's just looking for a person. His eyes are ranging throughout the area for a person who will stand up and say, I'll be God's instrument. I'll be God's channel of blessing to help other people flourish. And my question today as I close is, are you that person? Oh, what God will do with a person like that. Oh, what God will do with a church full of people like that. What I'm saying to you is that while God is God, he often does not override our disobedience. Instead, he chooses to work through us to accomplish his purposes in this world. And that's why nobody ever, 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 ever regrets that they spent their life serving others. In Jesus' name. No one ever regrets that they gave their time, they gave their life ministering to other people because that's where God meets us in such a profound way. That's where we see the fruit of flourishing. So here's the bottom line. There is no optimal flourishing without helping others flourish. Father, I ask that you would help us to get in on your best I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would continue to work through our lives, in our lives, and show us those things that you want us to be involved in as your instruments. Help us never to just settle down in Haran in a life of convenience and ease that has some of the marks of flourishing but isn't the real deal. I pray that all of us, Lord, would be tenacious and by your grace, we would move on in obedience. We would move on in obedience to the true life of flourishing you designed for us. This is our prayer, Lord. And I pray that you would not only receive glory, but that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed because we cooperated with your grace and allowed ourselves to be used as your instruments in this world. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.